I want to start off by saying this morning, thank you for the opportunity and the privilege to speak God's word, preach God's word before you this morning. It's a great privilege. Something I take very seriously. This is the opening of God's word. Let God speak through his word this morning. I want to thank you for the opportunity to do this. I hope, pray that it's edifying to you this morning. I also want to say thank you to whoever uh, put donuts into my office. Uh, I was getting, just before the service, I was walking back into my office to get something. I saw a box of Dunkin' Donuts. Uh, I just want to say, whoever that is, thank you. You know the way to my heart is through uh, glazed sugar, so that's great. Uh, but, well, before we begin, I, I'd like to pray again as we open God's word and as for God's help to communicate his word clearly and rightly and divide, divide it rightly as I ought to. So let's pray together. Father, these are the words of life. These are the words of life. This is where we know the truth. This is where we are reminded of you. Of you. We get to know you through your word. We have nowhere else to go but to your word. And so we come this morning humbly, under submission to your word and what it says, but also grateful that you have opened our eyes to see it, to understand it, to see Christ and savor him. So I pray that you would do that work this morning in us and through me. God, as your humble servant this morning, that you would give me clarity of speech. And I pray for my friends here to have clarity of mind, the spirit you would open their hearts to receive what you would have for us this morning. pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, last night we stayed up way too late watching the Olympics. We've done that the past couple nights, is staying up late watching the Olympics. The Olympics are probably one of my favorite events in all of the world uh, for a number of reasons. And I remember one, th- one thing that I'd watched them in my whole life, but I remember one thing in particular from the Summer Olympics this past year I had never noticed before. Is that I, as I think about the most strenuous events, the ones that are like the hardest on your body, I didn't think of rowing as one. But if you ever watched a rowing race, these, these groups of eight or two, sometimes even one person, from, for a mile, they, they row and row and row. They can't stop. They are in the same pattern over and over and over again. And by the time they reach the end, if you see these rowers at the end of their race, They are exhausted. I mean, they are like so red in the face. They're breathing heavy. It is so, so tiring. And I noticed one thing, and as I was thinking about rowing, it's got me thinking about rowing a little bit and thinking, this is the ultimate like team sport. Because these men and these women on this, in this boat, are doing the same thing together at the same time for that entire time. Can you imagine what would happen if one of those rowers got out of sync with the other ones? It would, it, it, they would lose every sense of momentum. They might start going in a different direction entirely. They would be lost if one person got out of sync. So they, every single person on that rowing team is vital to doing it. They could not do what they do without every single person on it. There is a deep unity that's needed amongst these rowers. They need to be on the same page, going in the same direction. They train for this year after year, day after day, 
to be in the same rhythm. There's a person at the front of the boat who's calling them to make sure they stay in unison. To get out of unity would be disastrous for a rowing boat. And I want to posit to you this morning that falling out of unity as, a bo- as the body of Christ would be equally disastrous. That if, one, if we are out of sync with one another, if we do not have unity and unison together as a body here this morning, we will fall out of sync, we will fall out of rhythm, we will lose sight of our goal, we may fall into a different direction entirely. So the unity of the body of Christ is vitally, vitally important. We need to be of one mind, pursuing one direction, the glory of Christ, pursuing the gospel together. And I think this is even more important as we consider the world around us today. I don't need to mention much more than that to know, for you to know the world is in disunity everywhere you look. You don't find people agreeing on much of anything these days. There's not unity around anything. Maybe, maybe a sports team. Maybe that's the one place. But other than that, there's, there's disunity everywhere. And so in, the, in light of that world that we live in, that is dysfunctional, that does not have unity amongst, its, amongst itself, it is that much more important that as the body of Christ, we are a light of unity into that disunified world. That we shine as a light to the world that is dis, this disunified in our unity, in our love for one another. In our commitment to doing this to all together, we are not individuals. Just, we're not merely individuals when we gather in here this morning. But we are a collective, unified body. And we live that out. This morning in our passage in Philippians chapter 2, this is what Paul has in mind. The unity of the body, the vital importance of the Philippians being unified. And Paul's message to the Philippians is a message that God is speaking to us this morning. The necessity of being unified. But how do we cultivate that? It is perhaps not natural to be unified. After all, we in this room come from all sorts of backgrounds. We come from various places. We have various cultural experiences, various ages. So how do we all, as these various people with all these different experiences, come together at once to be unified as a body of Christ? What kind of attitude do we need to have? What kind of perspective, what sort of demeanor do we need to have as a body that will promote unity amongst us. This morning we'll see three attitudes that promote unity in the body of Christ. We'll see three attitudes that promote unity in the body of Christ. The first attitude from verses 11 through, for, for verses 12 and 13 is humble obedience. Humble obedience, an attitude of humble obedience. Let's read those verses. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. 
So immediately we see a therefore, and if we are good students of the Bible, we wonder why it is there. What is the therefore, therefore? Well, our passage today is, is in the middle, almost in the middle of the, the end of an argument that Paul's been making from the, from the end of chapter 1 in verse 27. So everything that is being talked about today is connected to a larger argument Paul is laying out, starting in verse 27 of chapter 1. It's kind of a linchpin verse. So let's read 127. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So everything we read today and in chapter 2 is based off of this. This is great, Paul's great command to the Philippians. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That whether I'm with you or whether I'm absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, side by side for the gospel. Paul's desire is that the Philippians' life is worthy of the gospel. That they, they literally, they live as in a way consistent with the gospel they've believed. They live as citizens of the kingdom. That they are, have been changed by Christ. They've been brought into the kingdom of light. Now they're supposed to live that way. Live as citizens, as appropriate citizens of, of the light, of the kingdom. And what characterizes this life worthy of the gospel? What characterizes people who live in a manner like this? For Paul... It's unity. Isn't that interesting? To say, what, what would characterize a life worthy of the gospel? It's that we're unified together. The, unit, the unity of the church is showing us that we are living lives worthy of the gospel. Was what he says, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side. So a manner of life worthy of the gospel is striving side by side with other people. And how do we build this unity? How do we do that? Well, Paul starts chapter 2 talking about Christ's example of humility. The key, key way for Paul when he's talking about unity is, is to say, you be unified by being humble. Humility is a fundamental aspect of unity. We follow Christ's example of humility. In the, in the beginning part of chapter 2, he's walking through just Christ's great example of humility. How Christ looked not only to his own interests, but the interests of others. That he took on the form of a servant, being, obe- being obedient to the point of death, even on the cross. And so Paul is saying, likewise, as Christ was humble, you also fall, follow in Christ's example of humility. And Christ was obedient. In verse 8 of chapter 2, He's becoming, Christ became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So as Christ was humble, you also, Philippians, should be humble. And as you are humble, you are producing unity. So you follow in the example of Christ's obedience by obeying Christ. So that's where, we're, that's where we've been. That's where Paul's been in this argument. So now, I think with understanding that, it helps us to know what Paul is talking about here. So therefore in, in, therefore, in light of what Christ has done, in light of who Christ is, in verses 9 through 11, he's been bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
in light of all of what Christ has done, in light of Christ's obedience, in light of Christ's humility, what should they do? Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So if we just start with my beloved, my beloved, there's a tenderness to Paul here. This is in stark contrast to letters that he would write like Galatians, where he's, he's been pretty, very, very forceful with them. But here in Philippians, Paul is expressing his love for these people. Philippi was the first church that, that Paul had established. There's a deep love for the people here. So everything he says comes from this place of love. As you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. So they've, they, these people have previously obeyed Christ. In the past, the Philippians have shown that they, are, they have a track record for obedience. And Paul is saying, keep going. You were, you were really obedient. You were faithful while I was with you. But now even more so in my absence. Paul is suffering. He's away from them. He can't get to them right now. So saying, even right now in my absence, obey, obey, continue to obey, urging them all the more to be obedient. So don't, don't lose sight of my, your obedience. Keep pressing on in your obedience. Then I think we come to a perhaps famous phrase in the Bible, perhaps one you've heard before, Maybe it's been confusing to you before. Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is Paul's imperative command to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What does it mean to work out your own salvation? There is no doubt been a lot of conversation on this throughout the years, throughout church history. What does Paul mean by working out my own salvation? I don't know about you, but when I hear the words working out, the first thing that came to mind was like a math problem. It's like I'm presented with this problem. I'm given this worksheet, and it's like, all right, work it out. Figure it out. Here's, here's the problem. You're faced with it. Now go ahead and just work it out. Have you ever, when you're facing a sort of complex problem, and there's a lot of different variables in your mind, and say, well, I need to work this out. And so you just spend time going through all the scenarios. You, you weigh every option. You, do the, you make, it, make a pros and cons list. All is a part of working out the problem. You've got to figure out what's wrong. I'm going to do all this. It's a lot of work. So you, you develop a strategy to solve the problem. Is this what salvation is? Is this what Paul means by salvation? That God is handing us a worksheet that says, you've sinned. Good luck. Figure it out for yourself. Work it out. And so then we spend our entire lives trying to figure out every scenario. We look everywhere, trying to figure out, okay, how do I rectify this? And hopefully, maybe at the end of the life, our lives, we say, yes, Jesus. Jesus is the answer. Is that what working out our salvation is, where we are left on our own working out how we're supposed to be saved? Or it's a process. For Orthodox Christians, working out salvation means asceticism. Severe self-discipline, avoidance of all forms of indulgence. In my preparation for this, for this sermon, I, I was reading what they, how they interpret this passage, and they, they use this verse in their teaching that salvation is a process. 
that salvation happens over time, that you're working out your salvation. You're not really, you're not entirely saved at the moment, but you're working it out over time, that you and God are cooperating together in this process. Internal salvation is linked to the level of your righteousness that you acquire over time. Is that what Paul's saying here? That we work it out over time? That over time you're going to get more and more saved? As your righteousness builds up, your entrance into the kingdom builds up? Far from it. Far from it. Let's break it, let's, let's break it down quickly. The word for work out, it has the idea of carrying out something. You're fulfilling, you're, you're, you're performing something. The idea that something has already happened. There's something that's already happened and now you are seeing it through. So salvation is not just accomplished by the Philippians' effort, but they're responsible for carrying it out. Back in chapter 1, Paul has already noted that salvation is from God. Salvation is from God. So that's clear. Paul's been clear from the beginning. That salvation is only from God. That's, but that, that's already happened. That is already secure. There is nothing more you can add to your salvation. You don't go through a process of becoming more and more saved over time as you work out your salvation. You are justified. You are saved. But given your status as a saved people, you carry that out. You live that way. Faith in Christ is expressed as obedience to Christ. Your faith in Christ is expressed in your obedience to Christ. So salvation is not only something they receive, but it's something they do over time, in a, over the long haul. Perhaps you've heard there, there's a book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. I think that, has, that, that works well for what the, this concept here, that working out your salvation is that, a long obedience in the same direction. That day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, as a saved person, as someone who has been brought from the kingdom, from death into life, from darkness into light, given that you go forth and you obey day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, in the same direction, working out your salvation. To work out your salvation is to press on in faithfulness to Christ. It's to day by day fight for a renewed mind. It's to choose the path of obedience to Christ over the path of least resistance. This is the example of Christ for us. He chose the path of obedience as he is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he cries out, Lord, if if it's possible, take this cup from me. But if if that's not possible, your will be done. As we choose the path of obedience, we work out our salvation in long, steady, faithful obedience to Christ. Because again, faith in Christ is marked by our obedience to Christ. But what does this obedience have to do with our unity as a body? Well, the word for work out here is a plural word. It's plural. In fact, the the commands of this section are all plural. They're not singular. It's primarily a command for the Philippians as a body, as as a church, Even the word translated your own, which sounds kind of singular, is plural in the Greek. So Paul intends for these imperatives to be practiced corporately. That as a church, Philippians, you as a church, work out your salvation together. 
You're not an individual just doing this like a lonesome Christian, lone ranger Christian, doing it all yourself. We're to carry out, we're each, we are each responsible for carrying out our own salvation. Each of us is responsible for our own obedience to Christ. Absolutely. But we're also to work it out together as a body. We are a part of one another. One commentator put it this way. So this is an ethical text. How saved people live out their salvation in the context of the believing community and the world. And in a real sense, if you are a member of Woodhaven Bible Church, if you are a member of any church, you have an imperative to be working out your salvation alongside the other members. We in this body have an imperative in Philippians 2 to work out our salvation alongside one another. Our sanctification, our obedience to Christ is not a singles match. It's not where we are fighting on our own. We are to come alongside one another. This is part of the beauty of the body of Christ. One of the things I love most about the church is that we are coming together from all kinds of backgrounds, ages, different perspectives, we all come together, we're banded together. Because we're all, we, all see, we, say, we all say together, let's pursue Christ together. We're going to do this thing together. We're going to encourage each other to hold on to Christ in the midst of great suffering. We're going to exhort one another to remember Christ if we see them drifting away. We can hold each other accountable to pursue Christ-likeness. We are all deeply, to be deeply invested in each other's sanctification. So as you look around this morning, as you consider your fellow members here of WBC, are you coming alongside other people in this body to encourage them to keep keep obeying Christ? Brother, sister, continue to pursue. Hold fast. Stay strong. I'm, I'm with you. I'm in this with you. Lord willing, we're all headed in the same direction. We're all headed in this direction of obedience to Christ. And so our church unity will be greatly strengthened when we're all on this same page, when we're all laboring alongside each other. Because we all together say, as I look at you, and I'm talking to you, I have a conversation with you, and I'm saying, brother, I want both of us to be more like Christ. Sister, I want both of us to be more like Christ. Let's do this together. Let's obey together. That's going to build a deep unity amongst us as we're all pursuing a long obedience in the same direction together. So if, we, if you come here this morning and you say, I don't really know many people in this church. I kind of just like come in and I dip out. One, I think, I think there, is some, there is part of this that, that is saying, you need to be, we need to be invested in each other's lives. It's one thing to come to church on a Sunday morning and just be in attendance, but it's another thing to be a part of this body where we come together and we do this, we obey Christ together, we encourage one another in this way. But it's not just obedience, it's humble obedience. Because Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Again, this is a phrase that has received some debate. Am I supposed to obey God by shaking in the knees? Am I supposed to be scared of God as I obey? Should I be worried that he'll smite me down if I disobey? 
No. This phrase has much less to do with being scared of God than being humble before him. Than being humble before him. Because verses 9 through 11, Jesus is the high exalted one. He has been bestowed, the name above every name has been bestowed upon him. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Every tongue will confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is who Jesus is. This is God, the, Jesus, the, the exalted one, the creator of the universe, the one who sustains all things. And one day we will all in this room come before that king. We will all come before him. We are included in those knees that will bow down. We are the ones who will confess him with our tongues. So we live, we're living in light of that, that one day we will face God. We will face God and give, a, give an account for what we've done with our lives. So there's, there's, a, there's a humility also in the, that we are living in the sight of God right now. As we obey, we are, we are humbled in thinking, this great God, who am I? Who am I in front of this great God in the sight of him? We don't obey with great pride. We don't obey and, and say, man, I am a great obeyer. We don't look to other people, whether it's in the world, other Christians in the world or in this church, and say, thank God I'm a better obeyer than they are. Now we are to be humble in our obedience. Humble obedience can look like taking on the jobs that you think you're better than. Maybe serving here at church and you feel like, I, I'm, kind of, I'm, I'm better than this. If, if your, your pride talks, your flesh is talking and saying, I, I kinda, I've been at this church for 35 years, so I, don't, I, I shouldn't have to do this. This should, this should be the, the, the other people's job. Humble obedience might say, no, I want to serve. Like, in light of God and the exalted one, what he's done for me and who I am, and what he's done, I can do anything. I can obey Christ in serving in this kind of a way. One commentator says this, fear of the Lord is the best way to dispel the attitude of selfish ambition or vain conceit. If the community is to be unified, we need this attitude of humility that we're doing everything in the sight of God. That we as a church, what we do here on Sunday morning, what we do in our service, we're doing in the sight of God. And that should motivate us to, to obey and obey in a humble way. There's great unity as we do this together. When there is humble obedience amongst all the people where we willingly serve one another, when we serve, willingly give of one another, give to one another in a humble way. And Paul gives us a, actually a, a, even a second reason why we need humble obedience. Later, later, and now in verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That you, we, I cannot say I am obedient, I'm obedient because I did it. I am such a, I, I like buckled down and I was obedient in and of myself independently. I don't need anyone's help to obey. I've got this on my own. But no, Paul in verse 13 clearly says God is the one who energizes your work of obedience. That's a, if, if, we, if we recognize that it's God who's working, it's not you, 
There's no place for pride in your obedience. But it's because it's God who works in you. And he even says to will and to work. That covers the whole spectrum. To will, God is the one who fills you with a desire to obey him in the first place. So from the very beginning, your desire to obey is because God has done that in you. And then to work, God is the one who helps you to obey him. He gives you the desire to do so, then he helps you do so. So when you are obedient to God, it's not to puff, puff yourself up and be like, I'm getting pretty righteous. But it's like, God, thank you. Thank you for opening my eyes, giving me a desire to want to obey you. That's humble obedience. That's humble obedience, recognizing that it's God doing this in me. So if you're struggling to obey him at any moment, if you're facing temptation or you're struggling, God, how do I obey you? I, I, like, I, I mean, I would want to, but I'm struggling right now. This is, this is hard. You can, you can pray, God, help me to obey you in this moment. Give me your strength to endure this temptation. Help me to respond to this person in a way that obeys you. Because God will delight in a prayer like that. I know sometimes that I, I have faced temptation and I feel like, and I feel like okay, I just got to buckle up. And I don't, I, don't, I don't ask God. Like, God, help me. Help me. Give me the desire. Help me to do this. I think it would be so helpful for our obedience is if we know that God is on our side. God wants to help us obey him because he delights in it, both to will and to work for his good pleasure, that God delights when we obey him. He, it pleases him to see his people obeying him. And so what will please God right now for the Philippians is for them to be unified. And for us this morning, for us to be unified, let's humbly obey Christ together. Let's obey, let's obey with humility. So that's the first attitude. The second attitude is a humble heart. A humble heart. So in verses 14 through 16, Paul fleshes this out even more. So in verses 12 through 13, Paul is giving a sort of more general command of like, okay, obey. And he gets a little more specific. It's dialed in a little bit more to the, the Philippians. I think, verse, I think verse 14, the command he gives He's very aware of what's going on with the Philippians, and this is very relevant to them and to us too. Let's read. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor, in vain. So how do we obey? How do we work out our salvation? Paul, couldn't be more clear. Work out your salvation and obey by not grumbling or disputing. Think of grumbling as the moral, the moral rebellion against God and disputing as the intellectual rebellion against God. I think Paul wants us to go back to the Old Testament. This, the language he uses in these sections is almost directly from the Old Testament. If you think about grumbling, I think of the Israelites. Just in, even, it was so funny, in, in children's ministry this morning, we were talking about Numbers 13 and 14. If you remember this, remember this story, 
They have, they, have been, they, have been brought in, they have been brought out of Egypt. And they are going to be, they've been given the promised land. All right, go and take the land of Canaan. And the people, go, they're, they're, go, they're going. And they come back. And the people are so strong, we can't possibly go in there. They begin to grumble. The Israelites begin to grumble against God. Say, why did you bring us out of Egypt in the first place? Did you bring us here to kill us? In other places, they, 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 they grumble and say, oh, that we were back in Egypt when we had all this great food, the spices, it was wonderful, and now all we have is this manna. The Israelites were grumblers. And God did not take it lightly. If you want to know exactly how seriously God treats grumbling, we won't read it this morning, but number 16, uh, God brings some serious judgment on those who grumble. So lest we think grumbling is just some minor sin, consider how God deals with it in the book of Numbers. The Lord does not take grumbling lightly. To grumble is a rejection of him, ultimately. To reject God, to reject God, to grumble is to tell God that what you think he's done is wrong. You're grumbling against him, saying, I can't believe you'd do this, God. Like, I have worked so hard for you. I have done everything right. And this is how you treat me. To grumble against God, we're like, well, God, I know, I know you're sovereign, but I think you're, uh, you need to tune up your sovereignty a little bit. This is grumbling. And how common is this in our lives, in my life? Every, I think every day we're tempted to grumble in this, over small things or big things. When, when we interact with a person that uh, doesn't do something the way we want, might want them to do it, to grumble against them. And to grumble against them is in a sense grumbling against God because he has brought that situation into your life to grow, to, to grow you, to conform you in some way into the image of Christ, to grow you in Christ-likeness. When you grumble, you're kind of saying, I, don't, I, I want to grow in Christ-likeness, but not that way, not through that means. And disputing is more intellectual in nature. When we start to question God and his ways, thinking of Job, in Job chapter 31, he says, Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the works of iniquity? Does he not see my ways and number all my steps? This is Job disputing. Job, God, I was, I was faithful to you all along the way. This is how you treat me? I'm starting to question your ways. And it seems like the, the members of the Philippian church were grumbling and disputing against one another. And let's face it, we grumble today too. This morning, perhaps you've grumbled already. And if we face the reality of it, the people of this church are going to disappoint you. Your fellow members are going to offend you at some point in time. We are all humans in this building together who sin against one another. And so if, 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 you, say, if you say this morning, gosh, I've been here for a little while, no one's disappointed me, no, one, no one's offended me yet, just wait. Just wait. Just wait. I've only been here for a couple months, and I've probably, I've probably disappointed you already in some way. This is the reality, that even the most unified of churches, you can be the most in-sync church together. You can be the most in-sync rowing team, and you don't think those guys or girls grumble against each other or dispute one another. Yeah, even the most unified of churches face 
disappointment and offense from one another. But the choice we face is what we do when people disappoint us, when people offend us, makes all the difference for our unity. Will you grumble against them? Maybe you wouldn't grumble to their face. No, you're, you're, you're too moral for that. But maybe when you get to the car, and you say, I can't believe that person spoke to me that way. They did not even say hi to me this morning. They were kind of rude to me. They said something that was kind of insensitive. Or you're on your back, or back home. Or maybe, you just, maybe just in your mind, you're grumbling against them. I think that's all too common a temptation for all of us in this room. That's our flesh. But what Paul would say to the Philippians and what God would say to us today is that we should not treat these people with grumbling and disputing, but have a humble heart towards them, to count them more significant than ourselves. We look to their interests, not our own. We say, I have been forgiven much, therefore I will forgive much. But our heart does not swell up with pride, does not swell up with a grumbling spirit, but says, God, help me to obey you by being humble right now. Help me to remember all that you've done for me and how I can forgive this person. So unified church is one where its members have humble hearts towards one another. We're gracious with one another. We're long-suffering with one another. We're quick to forgive. We recognize our differences. We, we have differences. We express those differences. We're not homogenous. But our fight for unity is greater than our differences. Our pursuit of unity together, our pursuit of Christ is greater than those differences. So we need to have humble hearts. And Paul gives a reason why we should, not do all, we, we, we should do all things without grumbling or disputing. In verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. But to be blameless and innocent. This is, to char- this is to characterize God's covenant people, blameless and innocent, never to achieve it perfectly, but we're pursuing it. We're going hard after being blameless and innocent. We're not being passive in that effort, but we're going after it hard. Our unity together will help us, help present us blameless and innocent. In the midst of a crooked and, genera- cro- crooked and twisted generation, this is so, I think it's just so interesting. That in the midst of the world around us that is disunified, that is often not humble, we shine as lights in the world, in the midst of a dark world, when we are unified together. When we're quick to forgive, when we're gracious, when we're long-suffering, we show the light of Christ, the gospel light, and it shines into a dark world. And see, yeah, we come from a number of places we may not, I'm, you and I may not have a lot in common, but we've got this one thing in common, and this transcends everything, and we can be unified. Even if nothing else, we, we have nothing else in common, we can be unified under the banner of Christ. So our unity together as, a, as believers exists in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. What message do we want to give the world about the church? Do we want to give the, the world a message that we fight, that we don't get along, that we're quick to point out each other's faults. Christians are light in a dark world. And I think 
as I reflect on this, this is why Christian infighting is so insidious. Christian infighting is so insidious. It is dangerous. It is not helpful. It destroys a witness. It can look noble. It can feel really right to put down other Christians who differ from you. If they differ on a secondary issue, and you say, well, I'm, going, I'm doing this for the sake of the gospel. When the dark world sees my Facebook posts attacking some other Christian, they don't see a gospel defense. They may not see that I'm going doing this for the gospel. What they see is Christians fighting in the same way they do. They see Christians disputing each other in the same way they do. They see grumbling and disputing and say, that looks familiar. Brothers and sisters, we are not to look familiar to the world in how we treat people. Whether that's in our body or that's the collective church. We have humble hearts. Ready to defend the gospel. Absolutely. Die for the gospel, even. Holding fast to it. But we're also ready to count others more significant than ourselves. To not get caught up in disputes with one another that reflect poorly on the church and reflect poorly on our Savior. So humble hearts are vital for our body, for the church as a whole. We're holding fast to the word of life. We hold fast to the word of life. So we're humble in our hearts. We don't move on from the word of life, the gospel. Even in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, we exist in the midst of it. We don't separate ourselves from it. We're in the midst of it. We live in the middle of it. But we hold fast to the word of life. We hold fast to it. We don't let the cultural whims of any moment pull us away. We hold fast to what the scriptures say. We place a high value on God's word in our services. We don't just start with the Bible and move somewhere else. But we stick to it. We don't ask what the world says about any particular issue. We say, what does God say about this? How does the gospel inform how I think about this? So in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation that pulls at us, we're to be unified by this, that we are holding fast to the word of life. So I have just started here, but I'm thankful for the legacy of this church that I've even heard of over the years, of holding fast to the word of life. It's my deep, deep prayer that we do not lose this. We hold fast to the word of life because we shine as lights in the world. It's tied back to the word of God when Paul says that he does not want to run in vain or labor in vain. He wants to be proud of them. He knows that the work of God is the work of God that has brought them to this point and he will complete it. So Paul is not going to run in vain. He's confident that these people are going to hold fast to the word of life. He's confident that they will obey. And so, if you, if you are in Christ, we too should do all things without grumbling or disputing to have a humble heart. The third attitude that promotes unity in the body of Christ is a joyful, joyful service. Joyful service in verses 17 and 18. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. 
So what does Paul mean by being poured out here? This is, he's being poured out as a drink offering. If you, if it's in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul uses this language when he knows he's about to die. It means he's, he's giving his very life for the gospel. His life is being poured out, all of what he has for the sake of the advancement of the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel to the ends of the earth. He will give anything and everything so that people will hear and know Christ. He has endured much. If you know much about the life of the Apostle Paul, you know he has endured much up to this point, and he will endure even more after the book of Philippians is written. He has given his entire life to the service of the gospel. So it says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. Not super clear what exactly Paul means with the metaphor of the sacrificial offering of your faith. There's some debate in this. One commentator sees their service, the the Philippian service, as their partnership in the gospel. So their service, their offering, is the support they give to Paul. Their sacrifice is they are supporting him, they're praying for him. Paul is being poured out as a drink offering alongside their faith. But whatever the case, whatever Paul means by this metaphor, Paul rejoices. And this is the crux of these verses, that Paul is rejoicing. Paul's heart is for them to rejoice. And really, really, joy and rejoicing is the theme of Philippians. Theme. I mean, he he talks in every single chapter, he's talking about rejoicing. Every chapter, he's he's reminding them to rejoice or to take joy. And think about Paul. Paul has joy. He's taking joy and he's glad and he's rejoicing with you all even in the midst of his great, great suffering. His service is joyful even when he is suffering great hardship. How could Paul be so joyful? Well, he's glad of the work among, of God amongst them. That even if the advance of the gospel results in him being imprisoned, even if he has to die for it, he says, this service to God is worth it because the gospel is being advanced. He like, rejoices at the idea of giving everything he has, even his life, for the sake of the gospel. It's joy to him to do that. He doesn't begrudgingly go from place to place, suffering hardship, thinking, well, I've got to do it again. But there's a deep and abounding joy that he has in his service, in his suffering. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul wants the Philippians to be joyful in their service to Christ as well. Follow my example as I follow Christ. Joy, be joyful, be glad with me. No doubt, the the Philippians are facing opposition in this moment. In Philippians 1, Paul references, they have opponents. There's opponents of the gospel in Philippi. These Philippians are facing suffering. They're perhaps being persecuted for their faith. They are suffering for the sake of the gospel. And Paul exhorts them, maintain joyful service. Do everything with joy. Even in the midst of your suffering, take joy. How can they be joyful? Well, they have the privilege of serving the cause of Christ. It is a joyful thing to serve Christ. There is a joy and delight in doing the work of Christ, no matter what it brings you. No matter what happens to you, you say, this is in the service of my Lord. You say, my God, my Savior suffered. And so I can too. I'm joining with him. I know that the moment, these momentary afflictions pale in comparison to the glory that is before me. 
So they say, I will endure reproach joyfully, knowing what awaits me on the other end. If you hold on to this world, and this world and all that is in it, as your treasure, you will not suffer joyfully. You will not endure the sufferings of this life, whether it's from people outside or just circumstances of life that happen. You will not enjoy them joyfully. But if you have your eyes glued to Christ and glued to eternity, and knowing that that perspective can produce joy within you, to say, this is not my home. I am a stranger. I am an exile. I'm an alien here. I am just awaiting the heavenly city. And it will be hard right now. It will be so hard. I will, like, have sleepless nights over this. Maybe for the rest of my life. But I know that my joy is fixed in eternity. So you can have joy in that. One commentator said it this way, Joy in suffering is not delight in feeling badly. Rather, it is predicated upon the unshakable foundation of the work of Christ, both past and future. Joy has nothing to do with circumstances, but everything to do with one's place in Christ. So for our unity this morning, let's have a joyful attitude. Let's not do our service to God in a begrudging manner. I can, I, I can think of when you, when you, when you know it's your, it's your week up to serve in children's ministry. When it's your week to shovel the snow or something like that. And it just dumped snow the night before. It will do great wonders to, be great benefit to our body's unity if you do that service with joy in your heart. To say, this may not be exactly what I wanted to do, but I can joyfully serve the body together. A unified body is a joyful body where we work together for the sake of Christ with humble hearts, with joy in our hearts too. So it's my prayer this morning that the dark, crooked, twisted generation will see this gospel light of obedience, humility, and joyful service in us. And that as we do that, those who are close to us will be attracted by this light, and God will begin his great work in them and bring them to salvation. I just want to encourage you this, this, this week as you go forth into your life, work or at home, with your kids, with family, to hold fast to the word of life and know you're not doing this by yourself, but you're, you're united with brothers and sisters in Christ together all along the way. What a joy that is to have been brought together by the gospel of Christ into this building together. That even if I don't, haven't had a chance to meet you yet, even if you look around this room and you're like, I don't really know many of the people here, you are, you, you are united to them by the blood of Christ. If you are in Christ, you are united to them. What a beautiful thing that is. I'm thankful to God for that. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, what a privilege it is to hear from your word this morning. God, and your word convicts us to our very core, grumbling and disputing, obeying you humbly, joyfully serving, even in the midst of suffering. We thank you for your word. I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning that you, by your spirit, would bring application to their hearts in a, in a personal way, that they would know how you want them to apply this text, this truth to their life this week, this month, 
and forever. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, the highly exalted one, the name above every name. Amen.